Good morning, friends. We're continuing our little series through Philippians. We're still in chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 12 through 18 today under the title, Adversity, What's It Good For? Well, in the 35-plus years I've been a pastor, I've spent a fair amount of time talking with people going through difficult times. And I suppose it just comes with the territory. When things go well, the pastor rarely hears from his people, but when life tumbles in, he gets a telephone call or an email or a text. And I've discovered that in those situations, people usually ask two questions. Why has this happened to me? I can't see any purpose in it. And, you know, the only reasonable answer is to say that when you what you see depends on what you look for. I mean, some people never discover an answer because they're looking in the wrong places. The second question is, what do I do now? Now, not long ago, I discovered a good answer to that question. It's a little saying that contains a big truth. When hard times come, keep your eye on the donut and not on the hole. Now, think about that for a moment. A donut has two parts, the fried dough and the hole. You've got a choice of which one will attract your attention. You can either focus on what you've got or you can focus on what you lack. Your perspective in times of difficulty make all the difference. Now, our words today from Paul tells us how he responded to a difficult experience in his own life. And in these six verses, we learn four perspectives on, on adversity that will help us focus on what we have and not on what we lack. First, adversity opens new doors for the gospel. In verses 12 and 13, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Now, the word advanced is a military term that refers to the movement of an army into enemy territory. As the soldiers move forward, they clear the obstacles, open roads, drain swamps, build pontoon bridges so the whole army can advance unhindered. Now, Paul means to say that his imprisonment, which seems like a setback, served to advance the gospel in Rome. I mean, think for a moment about the long chain of events that led to this moment. It starts in Acts 21 when he went to Jerusalem to make an offering in the temple. Unfounded rumors spread that he had brought a Gentile into the sacred precincts. That led to a mob scene where Paul was severely beaten and would have been murdered if the authorities had not stepped in and arrested him. Eventually, he was sent to Caesarea to stand trial as a Roman citizen. And there he was held without bail for two years. And he narrowly avoided being murdered by a group of 40 cutthroats who vowed not to eat or drink until they killed him. Meanwhile, he gave his testimony to Felix, the Roman governor, who listened attentively and then kept Paul in confinement, hoping for a bribe. Still later, he testified in chains before King Agrippa, and eventually he was put on a boat with other prisoners and sent to Rome. But the boat never made it. Uh, it foundered, eventually sunk during a violent storm on the Mediterranean. Paul and the other survivors were washed up on the shores of Malta, where a poisonous snake came out of the fire and bit him. Now, finally, he was brought in chains to Rome, where he was kept under house arrest for two years, awaiting trial before Caesar. Meanwhile, his opponents spread rumors about him, attempting to destroy his reputation and ruin his ministry. Now, I listen to that and I say, wow, but that's the background of Paul's statement. Verse 13, what has happened to me? As he looks back, he clearly sees that everything happened for a divinely ordained purpose. The false rumors, the riot, the beating, the arrest, the four years of confinement, the public misunderstanding, the ruining of his reputation, 
the slanders, the whispers, the accusations against his name, the shipwreck, the snake bite, the house arrest, and all of it is clearly seen now as part of God's plan to bring him to Rome at pre- precisely this moment in precisely this situation so that he could be where God wanted him to be. As a Christ follower, Paul had a high view of the providence of God. And that's the belief that God oversees everything that happens to us, the good, the bad, the positive, the negative, and in that some way unknown to us, he orders all things, including our own free choices, so that whatever happens is for our good and his glory. Now, this is easier to believe when things are going well, when our health is good, our family's together, our marriage is positive, our career is moving forward, we have money to pay bills, friends who love us, and everything is coming up roses. If something else, uh, it's something else to say you believe in God's promise, providence when your health is bad, your marriage is failing, your family is blown apart, your career is going nowhere, and your friends have turned against you. That's when you discover what you truly believe. So how could Paul look at his circumstances in such a positive light? After all, being chained to a soldier in a Roman jail is normally not a good career move. Now, here's the answer. Paul judged everything by kingdom priorities. I find it fascinating that he doesn't uh, mention his own circumstances or complain about his imprisonment. It's as if he does, it doesn't matter at all. The only thing he cares about is that the gospel be preached and that people come to Christ. And since Paul lived solely for the kingdom, he could find something good even in jail in Rome. I mean, surely God must have sent him there for a purpose. He would find that purpose and rejoice in it. In fact, he found that purpose on the other end of a chain. But Paul was being guarded by members of the elite Praetorian Guards. These highly trained soldiers served as a cross between the Secret Service for the Caesars and Army Special Forces. Created by Caesar Augustus, Created by Caesar Augustus some 70 years earlier, the Praetorian Guard numbered about 9,000 in Paul's day. They were paid double the normal wage and served for 12 years, after which most of them retired in and around Rome. And over time, they became a powerful political force, putting forth nominees for the Roman Senate. All of this meant that the Praetorian Guards were one of the most important groups in ancient Rome. So how could Paul reach them with the gospel? It wouldn't work to rent a hall and have a Rome for Christ crusade. I mean, who wanted to hear a Jew from Tarsus talk about some man named Jesus? But God wanted to reach the Praetorian Guard, so he took his best man and had him unjustly arrested and sent him to Rome, where he was put in jail and chained to a member of the Praetorian Guards 24 hours a day. Since they changed guards every six hours, this meant Paul had a new audience four times a day, 28 times a week, and over 2,900 times in two years. That's why Paul could truthfully say that the news about Christ had spread through the entire palace guard. No doubt he had personally witnessed the hundreds, if not thousands of them, during the long days of confinement. And I suspect that before too long he wasn't chained to them, they were chained to him. God designed a chain reaction, if you will, for the spread of the gospel in Rome. And to that we say, man, only God. A few weeks ago, I received a letter from a man in prison in Louisiana. Well, I do not know him well. He's been in a couple of the classes I've taught there. Let me read you what he wrote. He said, I have been incarcerated for the past 23 years, 12 months, and 21 days. I have been in prison for a total of four times of about 29 years. I'm 58 years old, have three children. They're 35, 34, and 32. 
I am divorced and live here in Angola. And then here's really the reason for his letter. He said, I'm writing to let you know that I have received a blessing from being in your seminars and have heard you preach at Camp D several times. This past time you were here, I accepted Jesus into my life and now enjoy spiritual freedom, freedom from sin, fear, and slavery. And he thanked the letter. He closed the letter by thanking me for his new Bible and asking that we continue to pray for revival at Angola. Now, I share this because it illustrates a great truth. When God wants to save a man, he saves him. Prison bars won't stop the spirit. Now, perhaps this man will become like Paul and use his remaining days to spread the gospel to his fellow inmates. Now, we often see God's hand at work only in retrospect. I don't think Paul had any clear idea during those long months in jail in Caesarea that he'd end up in jail in Rome preaching to the guards. That would only be revealed later. The same is true of all of us. Rarely do we see the big picture when we're in the midst of a great trial. God's purposes are generally revealed much later. Our part is to patiently trust God while we wait for better days. One final note on this point. Circumstances are no obstacle to God. You can be chained and in the will of God. You can be chained in the will of God and be innocent of all charges. Sometimes God puts you in chains because you can reach more people in chains than you could ever in prison and freedom. Now, I'm sure Paul didn't want to go to jail, and I'm sure he didn't enjoy it. But amid everything else, he saw God's hand at work in his circumstances, and thus he could rejoice. See, friends, Jesus is Lord even in prison. He has his people behind bars so they can spread the gospel. Here's the second thing I want to point out, and it's this, that adversity encourages bold witness. Verse 14, Paul writes, Because of my chains, most of my, the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to spread, to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. You see, courage is contagious. In this case, Paul's courage and chains spread to the believers who watched him witness to the Roman soldiers. And persecution can be productive. Even though Paul was in jail on a trumped-up charge, his incarceration uh, produced a harvest of bold evangelism across the city of Rome. Now, how did Paul encourage his fellow believers while he was in prison? Well, I can think of at least four answers. He faced his difficulty with joy. He used every opportunity to speak up for Jesus. He demonstrated a complete lack of fear, and he refused to complain or blame others. Now, too often we say, I'm waiting for better circumstances. God says, go ahead and speak up. I don't need good circumstances in order to do my work. Hard times often give us fantastic opportunities to share the gospel with others. Here's my third point, and it's that adversity reveals true friends. Paul goes on in verses 15 to 17. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Now, no matter how you read them, these verses sound strange to our ears. Paul is speaking about two groups of genuine believers in Rome. One group loves him and preaches the gospel from good motives. The other group evidently is jealous of his leadership and took advantage of his imprisonment to divide the body of Christ. It's important to note that whoever these selfish preachers are, they aren't false prophets or apostates. I mean, if they were, Paul could have hardly rejoiced in their preaching. No, instead, they are true brothers in Christ who nevertheless are using Paul's situation as an open door to advance their own cause. 
They had the right message, the gospel, but preached it from wrong or unworthy motives. The message was good, the motives were bad, and their methods were questionable. Perhaps they said something like this. You know how much we love and respect our dear brother Paul? I mean, no one loves him more than we do. However, it seems as if Paul causes trouble wherever he goes. Someone stones him or they arrest him or he has to sneak out of town in the middle of the night. And I don't like to mention it, but there are bad rumors about him back in Jerusalem. I personally don't believe them, but we can't reject them out of hand. It's possible he's guilty of the charges against him. I mean, he's a wonderful preacher, but he seems to stir up trouble in every city. Frankly, I think it's extremely embarrassing to have an esteemed apostle in jail and in Rome of all places. Perhaps it would be better if Paul had never come to our city. In any case, he can hardly be our spiritual leader while he's in jail. So let's agree to pray for him and ask God to release him and, and send him somewhere else, preferably a long way from here. You know, that sounds pretty convincing, doesn't it? Especially if you don't know all the facts and no doubt it broke Paul's heart to know that some of his brothers were using his prison time against him. I mean, couldn't they see how God had opened this door for the gospel? Couldn't they rejoice with him at the progress of the gospel? In any case, he would rest content knowing he was in God's hands and that he had many friends who truly loved him. And adversity does that. It makes clear who your friends are, and we should add, and who they aren't. Fourth, adversity proves our ultimate values. Verse 18, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Now, here's Paul's triumphant conclusion. He has chosen to rejoice despite his critics. Paul's only concern is the gospel of Christ. As long as people preach Christ, it doesn't matter what they say about him. Perhaps you've heard it said that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. For Paul, the main thing is the gospel. He refused to be diverted by lesser issues such as how certain people felt about him being in jail. On one level, it was an irritation. On another level, it didn't really matter at all. Have you ever wondered how political leaders can stand the unending stream of criticism that comes from every side? Well, you know, the answer is not hard to find. The best leaders have committed themselves to a cause that's beyond them. They believe in something, whatever it might be. That is so great that even after they've given their best effort, there's still much work to be done. They believe in the cause so much that it doesn't particularly matter what happens to them personally. That's how Paul felt. In the end, whether his fellow believers loved him or hated him, it didn't matter so long as the gospel was preached. And you know, this is an amazing attitude when you consider how easy it is to be bitter about those who mistreat you. How easy to grow and attack those who attack you. Friends, do you believe God can work through people you don't respect? Well, let's make it more personal. Do you think God can speak to you through people you don't like or don't even trust? Is that possible? Can God do that? Can he put you in an office working under a grade A government certified total jerk and then work through that person to direct your life? Considering, consider the following key statements. One, God can use bad people to do good things. And two, he can use flawed people to do his will. Now, I know the second statement is true because he routinely uses people like you and me, and we're all flawed in one way or another. There's an important lesson here regarding how we respond to people we don't respect and may not like very much. So think before you react. God may be speaking to you through a very disagreeable or even disreputable person. This also raises the larger question regarding how we relate to other Christians, especially those who aren't in our tribe. 
As you know, there are hundreds of denominations, and most denominations there are smaller groups divided by doctrine and practice and history and worship styles and geography. The same is true inside most churches. There are pioneers, settlers, newcomers, transients, radicals, conservatives, progressive, moderates, just to name a few of the divisions we've managed to come up with. I mean, how should we relate to other believers who don't see things the way we see them? Now, this is crucial today because we have Calvinists and Arminians and Dispensationalists and Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists and Lutherans and Pentecostals. Plus, we have the traditional worship people, the contemporary worship people, and the liturgical worship people, not to mention the fundamentalists, the neo-fundamentalists, charismatics, evangelicals, and so on. But no matter what we say, we Christians love labels, and we love to argue about our labels. Considering Philippians 1, how would we respond to fellow believers with whom we have a genuine disagreement regarding doctrine or practice? Now, I'd suggest the following three principles as being consistent with Paul's attitude in this message. We should, one, hold our convictions graciously. Two, differ when we must, regretfully. And three, in all things, we should love sincerely. You see, grace enables us to speak the truth without alienating other brothers and sisters who see things differently. Regret comes from the fact that in a fallen world, we'll never see eye to eye with everyone. Sincere love helps us build bridges to those with whom we disagree. See, adversity comes to all of us sooner or later. We're not given a choice about most of the things that happen to us. I mean, everyone who's listening to this message today is one of three situations with regard to hard times. Either you're in one right now or you're coming out of a hard time or you're about to go through hard times. You just don't know it yet. And since adversity comes to all of us sooner or later, the only choice we have is uh, regarding our attitude. Will we look at the donut or will we look at the hole? If we look at what we don't have and what we have lost, we'll almost certainly lose our faith. If we look at what we still have, we can find the courage to keep on going. It appears that Paul refused to be mastered by his circumstances. No matter how difficult or personally frustrating they might be, He resolved to see the hand of God at work in every situation. Thus, he could rejoice even while chained to a Roman soldier. So how can we live like Paul? By committing ourselves to the truth that God has a hidden purpose in what he allows. Often that purpose will seem well hidden to us. And remember that Paul couldn't see the big picture until he finally arrived in Rome. Until then, he simply trusted God moment by moment, seizing every opportunity to preach Christ. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion.